This is a bus. This is the Clintons. This is the Clintons under the bus. In order to take advantage of the Roy Moore sex scandal, the Democrats have to throw the Clintons under the bus. It also helps with the rise of the socialist wing of the party. So it's lots of fun to take responsibility now that there's no price to pay, political price to pay, for actually talking about predator-in-chief Bill and his mall, Hillary. <laughs> right, we're going to talk about that. Plus, we got Cassie J, a feminist filmmaker who took the red pill as she was making her film The Red Pill about the men's movement. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is zippity-zing. It's a wonderful day, hurrah, hooray! It makes me want to sing! Oh, hurrah, hooray! Oh, hooray, hurrah! All right, so much stuff going on. The mailbag is tomorrow. Yeah. Got to be in the mailbag. You have to subscribe to be in the mailbag. It allows you 10 bucks a month, and I will solve all of your problems. You can ask anything you want. You, what you do is you go on. I'm going to get this right one day. You go on, you hit the podcast button, yes. and then... Andrew Claven Show. Andrew Claven Show, and then... The mailbag button. Mailbag button. You hit the mailbag button. You can ask anything you want. Religious questions, personal questions, political questions, Answers are guaranteed 100% correct and will change your life on occasion for the better. And, and while you're asking questions, today is the conversation with Michael Knowles, 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. Michael's conversation will stream live on the Daily Wire website, Facebook page, and YouTube channel, and it will be free for everyone to watch. But again, only subscribers can ask Knowles the questions. Subscribe now to ask Knowles questions and join the conversation. And you want to especially try to attack the Pope, because he hates that. And we'll have to see if he can defend himself. Plus, we have a new sponsor. And this, now listen, you don't have to listen to this ad. This ad is strictly for my wife, okay? It's only, this, all I want is for my wife to hear this ad. Or if you happen to be a woman who wants to get something for Christmas for a guy, or you happen to be a guy who wants something for Christmas for a, from a girl, or you even are just a guy who wants to get something for yourself, you have got to check out Man Crates. But I'm talking basically to my wife here. So just, just here it is. Mancrates.com is the surest way to find gifts that guys will actually love, guaranteed. I mean, I have this every Christmas. My wife says to me, what do you want for Christmas? And I say... And, you know, I got everything. I don't know. I don't want to, you know, I mean, I think most guys are like this, right? But this isn't some kind of cheese of the month club or new tie or anything. Man Crates offers over 100 hand-curated gift collections for every type of guy, from the rugged outdoorsman to the sports fanatic, everything in between. They've got, like, the whiskey appreciation crate. I hope you're hearing that, Mrs. Clavin, the whiskey <laughs> appreciation crate with a personalized decanter and glasses for a guy's favorite drink, a uh, grill master crate with a brass knuckle meat tenderizer and a cast iron smoker box. <laughs> I love this. I love this. Just go to mancrates.com and pick the perfect crate and choose the delivery date. And when the crate arrives, the guy gets a crowbar. <laughs> he gets to pry it open. It comes with a laser engraved crowbar, and you get to pry open the crate. Men's Health, Allure magazine are saying that man crates are the perfect gift for men and those who don't agree on anything. They have thousands of five-star reviews, and every man crate comes with a 100% satisfaction guarantee. I hope 
certain people are listening to this, you can own the holidays if you go to mancrates.com slash Clavin. I just spell it. I want to do it. <laughs> Everybody wants this, right? But you got to spell it with K-L-A-V-A-N. You get 5% off your order. That's at mancrates.com slash Clavin. 5% off. Mancrates, C-R-A-T-E-S, obviously, dot com slash Clavin. I hope certain people are listening to this. Because <laughs> it does sound like the greatest thing ever. I, I will test it out, but I haven't tested it out yet. And uh, it really does sound terrific. All right. So we have to, first of all, talk about the new accusations against Roy Moore. A woman came out. Uh, this is the fifth ac- woman accusing him. Uh, the, obviously, Roy Moore, the guy who is slated uh, to replace Jeff Sessions in the Alabama Senate. He's running for election against the Democrat in a very red state, but this is really hurting him. Uh, Beverly Young Nelson's the fifth woman. She came out at a press conference with Gloria Alred. Now, normally, when you sit next to Gloria Alred, you immediately look like you're lying <laughs> because Gloria Alred is just like this hit girl lawyer. But but this, she says that Moore trapped her in his car 40 years ago when she was 16. And gen- this is not like, you know, put his hand on her. He genuinely attacked her. Play the first cut of this. Instead of answering my questions, Mr. Moore reached over and began groping me and putting his hands on my breast. I tried to open my car door to leave, but he reached over and he locked it so I could not get out. I tried fighting him off while yelling at him to stop. But instead of stopping, he began squeezing my neck, attempting to force my head onto his crotch. I continued to struggle. I was determined that I was not going to allow him to force me to have sex with him. I was terrified. Yeah, okay, so if you think that accusation can't get any worse, wait till you hear this. Here's the second cut. At some point, at some point, he gave up. And he then looked at me and he told me, he said, you're just a child. And he said, I am the district attorney of Etowah County. And if you tell anyone about this, no one will ever believe you. So I forget which of the Ten Commandments forbids you to try to rape children and then bully them into silence, but I think more may have left that. Could be all of the Ten Commandments, like every page of the Bible. Holy moly. I mean, that's bad. And it's it's hard to look at that woman and think like, yeah, she's like some paid informant. I mean, she looked like she was uh, telling the truth to me. I got to say, you know, Roy Moore, let's be fair. He says it it ain't so. Uh, she says that they met at a restaurant called the Old Hickory House Restaurant, and here is Moore's response. I want to address what's been brought out on television today by Gloria Allred and a client that she has about things I allegedly did. I want to make it perfectly clear. The people of Alabama know me. They know my character. They know what I've stood for in the political world for over 40 years. And I can tell you without hesitation, this is absolutely false. I never did what she said I did. I don't even know the woman. I don't know anything about her. I don't even know where the restaurant is or was. And if you look at this situation, you'll see that because I'm 11 points ahead or 10 or 11 points ahead, this race being just 28 days off, 
that this is a political maneuver and has nothing to do with reality. It's all about politics. Okay, so the the thing is, she said he says he's never heard of the restaurant, doesn't know where it is, never met the woman. She has produced a her high school yearbook. Uh, can we we have a picture of that? That says it's signed uh, Roy Moore. It says to a sweeter, more beautiful girl, I could not say Merry Christmas. Christmas 1977. Love Roy Moore. DA 122277 Old Hickory House. <laughs> 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 I, know. I know. It's like, uh, Roy, I'm not so sure you're doing as well here as you, you might be. These women are beginning to look pretty believable, in which case you are a piece of crap. If that is, if like half that story is true, you are a piece of crap. Uh, they, um, they, you know, this, the Republicans obviously in Congress are, have just had it with this. And Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell has absolutely no patience with sex scandals. Remember Larry Craig? I mean, Larry Craig, he's the guy who was arrested at the Minneapolis airport by a cop, an undercover cop who was picking up guys because they would Apparently, the gay guys would pick up people through the stalls or something, and he he busted uh, Larry Craig. And uh, Mitch McConnell has no, absolutely no patience with that. And that was a big one because that really cost a lot of seats. And then there was uh, Bob Packwood. He was an, from Oregon. He resigned in 1995 under the threat of expulsion. And so this is Mitch McConnell talking yesterday, tight-lipped. I mean, Mitch McConnell doesn't have a lot of lip to begin with. He's got very thin lips to begin with. But they were they were vanished. They had vanished. This is him answering questions uh, at the Capitol. Is the burden on more to prove these false versus someone to prove that these are true in this situation? Or do you believe these allegations to be true? I believe the women, yes. Are you calling for him to step down from that Senate race? I did. I think he should step aside. Are you encouraging a write-in campaign with Senator Strange? That, that's an option we're looking at. Uh, whether or not there is someone who could mount a write-in campaign successfully. Would it be Senator Strange, do you think? Uh, we'll see. So, yeah, it's like they, there, there was one thing they were floating where apparently the governor of Alabama can reappoint Jeff Sessions back to the seat, but Sessions says that's not happening. He doesn't want, you know, he wants nothing to do with that. He likes where he is. Uh, in the Justice Department, though, he may not have liked where he was this morning before Congress being grilled about absolutely nothing, it seemed like to me. It was really bizarre. Anyway, so they, they, it's a real problem. Steve Bannon and his folks, remember, Bannon is responsible for this. And I said this yesterday. Bannon has a lot to answer for. And if this guy loses this election, I mean, look, if he wins and then the Senate throws him out, which I think be for Republicans would probably be the best outcome. I mean, he wins, but they toss him out. And they're allowed to do that. They can't expel a senator uh you know, it, it, on grounds like this, uh, for stuff like this. But Steve Bannon, now to be fair, this is a couple of days ago. This was after the first Washington Post story came out about this. But Bannon has stuck, in the, and Breitbart sites have been concentrating on kind of attacking the accusers. And this is Bannon still defending him a couple of days ago. They're finding some collusion going on in those stories about Judge Moore, right? You know, it's, is it just a coincidence that the Bezos, Amazon, Washington Post... Did the Billy Bush hit, and they didn't hit on Judge Moore? Really yeah. yeah, just a complete, complete random thing in the universe, right? Judge Moore, I'm standing with him. 
Yeah, I don't know, Steve, buddy. You know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> this one really, this one really smells. I mean, I, when when you hear a woman talking like that, I think every first of all, I think most men their their hearts immediately go like, ah, you know, I don't like you anymore, Mister Moore. <laughs> you know, I think this is just a bad thing. I don't mean to laugh about it. Obviously, it's a terrible thing, but I think the corruption makes me laugh. What can I say? Uh, yeah, that's that's my problem. The problem that the Democrats have is to take advantage of this and to be, you know, pompous and sanctimonious as Democrats love to be, they have got to go back and redeem themselves on Bill Clinton. There is a great story in The Atlantic uh, that has gotten a lot. It's got a drudge link. It's got a lot of play. Yesterday it was on Instapundit. Uh, and it's by uh, Caitlin Flanagan. And I should mention, because I'm going to praise the piece uh, so unrelentingly, uh, I should mention that Caitlin is my sister, uh, who's actually my, my sister-in-law, but she has been like a little sister to me for these past 40 years. Uh, you can tell she's like a sister to me because I just annoy the hell out of her. That's, that's what big brothers are supposed to do, right? We just annoy and, and pester them. But I also love her, and I'm so I'm in, she's an incredible writer, and she has become an excellent, excellent journalist. I'm so proud of her. I have to just say, and she just talks about she talks about the things that Bill Clinton was credibly accused of doing. The Juanita Broderick reported that when she was a volunteer in one of his gubernatorial campaigns, she had arranged to meet with him at a hotel at the last minute. He changed the location to a room in the hotel where she says he very violently raped her. She said she fought against Clinton throughout a rape that left her bloodied. Paula Jones, obviously, Kathleen, uh, Kathleen Willey. And she says, this is what Caitlin writes, it was a pattern of behavior. It included an alleged violent assault the women involved had far more credible evidence than many of the most notorious accusations that have come to light in the past five weeks. But Clinton was not left to the swift and pitiless justice that today's accused men have experienced. Rather, he was rescued by a surprising force, machine feminism. This is Caitlin Flanagan writing in The Atlantic. Machine feminism, the movement had by then ossified into a partisan operation, and it was willing eager to let this friend of the sisterhood enjoy a little droit de seigneur. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it means the right of the Lord, uh, basically. The notorious 1998 New York Times op-ed by Gloria Steinem, and she links to it, and you have to read it, must surely stand as one of the most regretted public actions of Steinem's life. It's slut-shamed, victim-blamed, and age-shamed. It urged compassion for and gratitude to the man the women accused. Moreover, it characterized contemporary feminism as a weaponized auxiliary of the Democratic Party. And here's her conclusion. The Democratic Party needs to make its own reckoning of the way it protected Bill Clinton. The party needs to come to terms with the fact that it was so enraptured by their brilliant big dog president and his stunning string of progressive accomplishments that, abandoned, that it abandoned some of its central principles. The party was on the wrong side of history, and there are consequences for that. Yet expedience is not the only reason to make this public accounting. If it is possible for politics and moral behavior to coexist, then and this grave wrong needs to be acknowledged. Now, today, there's an op-ed in the New York Times, a former newspaper, called something like, I believe Juanita Broderick. So the New York Times, I mean, Juanita Broderick just said, hell has frozen over, she said. And, and let's remember the thing, you know, when you go back to this, remember, the Democrats and the press are the same organization. The Democrats and the media are the same 
organization. So when you go back, it's the media, too, that is to blame. It's it's the media who is, they are the Democrats. I just want to play this clip because it is unbelievable. Don Imus, you remember Don Imus, who was chased off the air by Media Matters, the same group that's now, the same Soros group that's now trying to chase uh, Sean Hannity off the air, total hit group. But anyway, Imus is interviewing Dan Rather, godfather of fake news, right? And he's asking Dan Rather why they're not covering the Juanita Broderick story. This is at the time that the Juanita Broderick story came out and the press and the Democrats were protecting, and the feminists were protecting uh, Bill Clinton. It's worth listening to this because it's incredible. And this, even this this Juanita Broderick thing that, uh, this this uh, interview that the people over there at NBC News have been sitting on for some reason, who knows, but. Well, I think the reason is pretty obvious that they're, uh, they they don't call me and tell me why they run or don't run these things. I think it's pretty obvious they're nervous about, number one, whether this information is accurate, whether it's really true or not. And then, number two, uh, even if it does, it, it turn out to be true, it happened a long time ago. And number three, they got to be figuring maybe just maybe the American public has heard all they want to hear about this and they're saying, you know, next, let's move on to the next thing. I was reading either in Time or Newsweek that even the woman herself, Juanita Broderick, said she hoped that this thing went away this week. And she, <laughs> even she was sick of hearing about it. It's her story. But. Well, let's hope she gets her way with that. But then uh, somebody from NBC News told me that, uh, that she wasn't clear about uh, exactly when it happened, but then her son called me, uh, and he's uh, he's an attorney someplace, and... I guess in Arkansas, and he wanted me to know why he called me, God knows, but wanted me to know that that was not the case. She knew exactly when it was, and there was, so there was some other reason he thought they were sitting on it. This is old news, and we're just tired of hearing about it, and it happened so long ago, and we don't necessarily, you know, we don't know whether to believe them. We're just tired of all this, and he basically covers up for Bill Clinton. It's an amazing piece of, of journalistic conspiracy. And Dan Rather, the fact that Dan Rather still had a job after this is an incredible fact. Let's let's listen to another guy who went on to become the head journalist at ABC, George Stephanopoulos. And this is Stephanopoulos back at the time. This is 92, so it's before the Monica Lewinsky story, but it's it's after all of the, you know, what they called at that time the bimbo eruptions. Today they call them women accusing men, but then they were called bimbo eruptions. That's what they were de- uh deemed by Bill and Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was part of this. She helped to silence these women. Here's George Stephanopoulos, now head journalist at ABC. Now, Governor Clinton has a character problem, but I take it that your line of of counterattack is that it's un... Well, I mean, he he has not denied that he has engaged in marital infidelity. He denied a specific one. He said that he had problems in his marriage. That's right, and he, uh, he has talked about the draft, and to some people it's a character problem. Bill Clinton's passed his character test throughout his life and throughout this campaign, and he's shown it through his commitments to real fights. And what he's going to do in this campaign is focus on what's important to the American people, on the jobs and the education. That's what the American people care about. They want to move into the future. They don't want to be diverted by side issues. So... So, you know, I'm going to say something a little different. I'm sort of working my way through this because I believe there is something that has gone on here. Why are we doing this? Why? Now we have Republicans, and people were writing me yesterday when I went off on Roy Moore. They were saying, no, we have to, if we if we fight, you know, it's just like the the Muslims. If we don't fight the Muslims, if we don't, uh, you know, strike back against them, if the same thing with the Democrats, we have to strike back against them. It doesn't matter what Roy Moore did. We have to defend ourselves again. We're doing this because we're terrified of one another. 
We're terrified of one another. The Democrats back in the day defended Bill Clinton because they were terrified of us, who they thought we were. Uh, they thought we were the the. Um, you know, the religious, crazy fundamentalists who are going to come and wrap them up. What's the, that show on TV The uh, based on the Margaret Atwood no novel? Uh, the Handmaid's Tale. They thought, they, thought it was, they were living in The Handmaid's Tale. They still think that. They're still terrified. They're living in this imaginary world where Republicans are coming to take their sex lives away and, you know, their precious abortion rights, which maybe we do want to take away. But, you know, they're, they're talking about us as if we're these crazy loons, these crazy religious loons who want to crush them. Now... What happened was, because the press was owned by them, because they have the powerful arm of the press, they have the powerful arm of the academy, they have the powerful arm of showbiz, it created this atmosphere where they could essentially exclude us. They could make us all seem like we were nuts. But what we did is we built an alternative press. We built Fox News. We built the, uh, the an alternative academy and the think tanks that we have all over the place. And we were treated into our world where we could demonize them, and now we're terrified of them. And the question is, is our fear is our fear justified? Listen, conservatives are always fighting the tide because the tide is always for bigger government. Government naturally expands. The powerful want more power, whether they're Republican or Democrats. The Democrats at least openly have the philosophy of more power. The Republicans pretend to have a philosophy of less power, but they're powerful people, so they want more power. So Republicans are always a slightly at a disadvantage. Conservatives are always slightly at a disadvantage. It's true. But are we justified in really being this afraid of one another, so afraid of one another that we can't talk? I mean, what if we re we took the questions and said, instead of, let's take the questions of Islamic immigration just for a minute, and then I'll get to my guest. But let me take the question of Islamic immigration just for a minute. The, the left says, oh, you guys are Islamophobic bigots. You're horrible, hateful, terrible people that you want to ban Islamic uh, immigration or limit Islamic immigration. And we say, you guys hate America and you're bringing in these terrorists to kill us and you just want to destroy everything that's good and beautiful and you pr pretend to be feminist, but you love these guys who dress their women in burqas. But what if that, those are the extreme cases. What if those people exist? But what if somewhere in the 70% of us who are in the center, there are other questions? What if on one side there are people who are concerned about religious persecution, religious, uh, you know, bigotry can get very ugly very quickly, and you can have a Holocaust. The Holocaust really did happen with after centuries of people picking on Jews. So maybe they're afraid of that. Maybe we can talk to them about that, and we can say, hey, you know, on our side, we this is a creedal nation. We have a creed, and it's that creed that allows us to accept all kinds of different people. But what if there's something in, in the Islamic creed that doesn't work with our creed? So maybe we do have to limit immigration. That's a debate between people of goodwill. That's a debate you can have. That's a debate where you don't have to be afraid of one another. The press, the, the fact that the press is so left-wing and the fact that we have retreated into our own right-wing cocoon is what causes us to hate and fear one another such that we're willing to support sexual predators if they will keep our majority in in Congress or in the Senate. And I think that that's, it's a problem. It is a genuine problem. And I think people of, of goodwill are going to have to start reaching out across the aisle because the press is our enemy here. The media is our enemy. They want to cause hatred on the other side because they're all on one side. And, and our press is all on one side. And I think, and that sells. That sells. That gets good ratings. And somehow we're going to have to get around that roadblock of the media and start to talk to one another face to face. Because when we start to do that, we don't have to be, I hope, we don't have to be quite as afraid. Hey, the conversation is coming up with Michael Knowles, uh, who is, I don't, I don't know, what does he do? 
Is he's, I, he's, I, I saw him. I know. I saw him wandering around the halls. But you can ask him questions today at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. Uh, it will stream live on the Daily Wire website, Facebook page, and YouTube channel. And it's free for everyone to watch and just mock Knowles, which is always a pleasure. But subscribers can ask questions and mock Knowles face-to-face. Subscribe now to ask Knowles questions and join the conversation. i got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. But we have Cassie J coming up, a filmmaker who made a really fascinating film called The Red Pill, and it affected her life. We're going to talk to her about that. You can come on over to thedailywire.com and hear the rest. If you subscribe for a lousy 10 bucks a month or a lousy 100 bucks for the year, you can watch the whole thing right on our website and get the Leftist Tears Tumblr. All right, we're back. Have we got Cassie J? Yeah. Cassie J, uh, you know, many of you know that I've been a little slightly critical. I may have said a critical word now and again about the feminist movement. And in keeping with that spirit, I wanted to bring on this actress, award-winning director, and an actress, Cassie J. She's creator of The Red Pill, a documentary that dives into the men's rights movement. But it was a catalyst that changed her own views, and that's what I want to talk to her about. Cassie, have we got you there? I cannot see Hello. you. Hello. Hi, I can hear you, but I can't see Hi. you. All right. Well, they can see you, but I can't see you. So I'm going to just <laughs> assume Matt. Oh, there you are. That, that's nice. Now it's nice to see you. How, how are you doing? I'm glad you could come on. I'm not, it's nice to meet you. Yeah. Thanks so, for having me on. So let's, let's just start with your story because people keep hearing little bits and pieces of your story. But why don't you just tell what happened? You went off to make a film about the men's movement. So just, just let me know how that worked out. Okay. So it was uh, 2013. At that point, I'd been directing documentaries since 2008 when I was 21 years old. And uh, I, I was a staunch feminist of, of about 10 years. And I stumbled across the online men's rights movement, specifically the website of voiceformen.com, which was touted as the most kind of controversial and uh, inspiring debate and disgust and triggering moments for a lot of feminists. So I, I stumbled across that website and I was fascinated by it. I had never heard many of those talking points before and I myself was very offended by what I was reading. And at the time I was planning on making a film about rape culture, which this was before The Hunting Ground, so there wasn't a, a film about that yet. And uh, so I shifted gears and decided to make a film about the men's rights movement because no documentary filmmaker had ever interviewed actual men's rights activists and, and let them share what they believe on camera before. And I thought I was going to be filming a bunch of misogynists and that would be the whole film is just uh, showing men who hate women and and using that that story to show why we still need to fight for women's equality because of this. Uh, so that's how I went into the project. And But it didn't stay that way. I mean, basically, you saw something different than you were expecting. Right. So it, the whole film took three and a half years to make. I, I spent one year filming men's rights activists and three and a half years making it. And it was released in October 2016 in theaters. And uh, through the process of not only just that year of filming, but also the many years of, of post-production going through all the the raw footage that I had of men's rights activists talking about what they believe, I realized that uh, a lot of my uh, feminist kind of knee-jerk reactions to what they were saying uh, didn't match up with, with, I, I was so offended by what they're saying, but the more I started to listen to it, the more I realized that there was a lot of truth to what they're saying. And then I started researching what they were telling me and finding that they were on the, the right side of the research. 
And, and then I started to kind of see the, the feminist smoke screen, so to speak for, I mean, for lack of a better way to put it of, of how much misinformation is being put out by feminists regarding the gender wage gap and rape statistics on college campuses and all these things. And, and so basically what I kind of took away from the filmmaking process, and this isn't included in the film, so this is not a spoiler and it's probably new information for people who have seen the Red Pill movie, uh, one of the best things about making the Red Pill movie was I actually now feel more empowered as a woman dropping my my feminist belief system because I no longer walk through life thinking that everyone's out to get me just because of my gender. And so it's actually very empowering uh, transformation. <laughs> that, that's, that is, that really is interesting. I mean, has that, that's got to have affected your personal life too, right? Yes. Uh, especially with my now fiance, uh, who was also my cinematographer on the red pill. Uh, he was with me the entire process from starting when, back when I was making feminist documentaries and, uh, I, yeah, it just really improved our relationship as far as me actually trying to put myself in his shoes and seeing the, the challenges he face, uh, faces and, and the expected, uh, you know, roles that he should play out as a man and, and all the many ways that I'm privileged as the woman in our relationship and also in the business world. And, and uh, I mean, I just see so many different ways that I'm privileged as a woman. And I, I know that's not something feminists want to hear, but uh, <laughs> I'll say, yeah, the, yeah. I, I mean, that's got to have, I, I, I'm, I started out as a liberal, became a conservative and I faced a, immense hostility, not only personally, but professionally. Have you experienced that as well? Uh, yes. I, you know, it's, it definitely weeded out a, a lot of my, you know, friendship circles and, and working colleagues, just releasing this film. It, it, there wasn't, there wasn't many, direct conversations like I am no longer going to work with you because of you making the red pill movie, but there's clear, uh, you know, kind of ostracization from the people I used to work with because I, before making the red pill, I was making documentaries for the international museum of, of women and films about trying to get more girls into STEM education and, uh, films on gay marriage and LGBT rights. Uh, so I was very much, and that was my world. I live in the San Francisco Bay area, so it's, oh you know, I'm very much in a bubble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so one of the things that happened to me, I mean, I'm, you know, obviously much older and I, the things that kind of turned me around was I saw that I, I felt that, that blacks were suffering from the policies that I was to had always believed were supposed to help them. And I saw that the Cold War was won by uh, the guy that everybody said was a terrible warmonger, Ronald Reagan, and, you know, that the people who were on the right turned out to be right. What, one of the things I found is that once I started to see some of these things, see through what you called the smokescreen, it was hard to stop seeing that one thing led to another. There was kind of a chain reaction. Have you found that to be the case? Absolutely. And that's why the title of the film is The Red Pill. I mean, there's no going back. You can't see the world the same way again, ever again. And I wouldn't want to, even though it, I think it is a little bit more of a darker existence, seeing how much is wrong with the media and, and uh, you know, Hollywood, obviously, and social media. And and uh, and and higher education, universities, all that. Uh, it's it, it can get you really, you know, feeling like there's no way out of this dark hole. Uh, but I, I am glad to see it now, and I just hope to be part of the the shift in helping other people see it. I, I the the Red Pill movie really is just kind of a, a crash course 101 
mainly for an audience of people who are where I was five years ago in the feminist mindset. I, I really want more feminists to watch it. It's, it wasn't made for people who are already kind of, you know, red filled and, and see through the smoke screen. But, uh, but yeah, it is a deep rabbit hole and, and it, it is in every walk of life that you see it. Um, yeah. And at times it feels like it's, I don't know if it'll ever change because it just, it also, the more that I think new media is trying to speak out about these issues and, and my film and, and other people who are doing work like this, I think the more the really rigid uh, mindsets of, of radical feminists and radical liberals really dig their heels in even more into their ideology. And so it it's hard to to find the middle ground and, and reach across the aisle and have a conversation that doesn't end in screaming and slamming doors. It really is. I think it's, well, one thing is, I think the actual radical left agenda makes no sense. And I think they can't get in a debate with you so they can only scream you down and only call you all the names, the racists and the sexists and all that stuff. You know, I noticed the one thing about the men's movement that always kind of bothered me uh, is that I, I always felt that they sort of adopted the left's victim mentality. Like, so in other words, they were saying like, they were basically, if you can't beat them, join them. Uh, you know, if you're going to win points for being victims, we're going to be even greater victims. I, I, like, I sort yeah. of feel like the whole victim uh, battle, the whole victimhood battle could maybe be cast aside. Really, nobody in America is a victim, uh, except yeah. people who are victims of a crime or something like that. No, no group in America is a victim. We're not oppressed here. Yeah. It, it, that is definitely a worry that I've always had about the men's rights movement. And that's a large part of why I'm not a men's rights activist. And after making the Red Pill movie, I'm no longer a feminist. Uh, and I don't have a label. I haven't adopted egalitarian <laughs> or equalist. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm label-less if people allow me to be that. So, uh, but yeah, I, I do worry about the men's rights movement mimicking or mirroring many of the flaws of the feminist movement. But I also understand why they're why their work is, is valuable and important because they're, I mean, we do have this pendulum swing and, and I do think that third wave feminism or whatever feminism wave we're in right now has swung so far. And what really helped me kind of break out of that, that feminist mindset shell was learning all the different ways that men are discriminated against or, or disadvantaged uniquely. And, and while through that process of learning those many issues, I realized that neither of us is better or worse off. We're all just individuals that have different circumstances and, and certainly, you know, many different factors play into that. And we should really just have compassion for one another, regardless of trying to, uh, you know, tally up the points on, on who has it worse. And I, I definitely think the, um, overgeneralization aspect of feminism is, very problematic for, I mean, just the, the fact that they say they're the movement for gender equality and they're about helping and protecting women. And yet like one of their big issues is we need more female directors. And there, there's a lot of initiatives in Hollywood trying to get more female filmmakers, but you have to be a feminist. It's, right. it's, and that's why I say that feminism isn't for women. It's for feminism because <laughs> it's, <laughs> it is for a political ideology. It's not just for women as half of the population. Well, that was a big revelation to me, too, is that leftism is for leftists. I mean, that's the whole thing, is that they, everywhere that leftists work, they say they're for blacks, they say they're for women, they say they're for the minorities, but really it's for the, the principle of, they're using those people to build the principle of greater government and greater government control over individuals. 
you know, we're so here we are in the middle of this huge sex scandal, and I'm out in Hollywood, and like that, you know, I I I work in Hollywood, and I I know a lot of this stuff does go on, and I I certainly know that. Uh, Almost everyone. Look, every man has done something he regrets, and every woman has uh, has paid the price for that at some point. How do you look at this now that you're that you no longer have a label? I mean, I I don't feel this is actually a feminist issue. I feel it's an issue of how people treat each other. But I mean, how do, how do you look mm. at it? Uh, well, I, I'm both glad and terrified that you're asking me about this topic <laughs> because I've never spoken on it before, and I have so many thoughts on it. And there's I have a lot of cognitive dissonance around this topic of the Hollywood sexual harassment kind of witch hunt and and all, all these stories coming out. Uh, obviously, it should go without saying, saying, but I have to say it because I'll be attacked if I don't say it. Absolutely, you know, groping, indecent exposure, obviously rape, all of that is vile, detestable, and excusable behavior and do not support that under any means. Uh, and now this is where I'm going to get in trouble. Go everything ahead. I <laughs> But I do think that the definitions are being blurred uh, with a lot of these stories as well. Uh, I think there have been many women that have come out with stories and not necessarily themselves saying, I am a victim, X, Y, Z. They're just saying, oh, yeah, that person, yeah, I had a, a horrible experience with him, roll their eyes and move on. But then their story is being printed as, uh, you know, a, a sexual harassment or assault allegation against that person, for instance, with a Ben Affleck, well, his is unique because, you know, this is footage that was filmed. It was a producer on his lap. You could see what's happening. And she never came out and said, I am a victim. This was no. not consensual contact. There were her stories that they were doing a bit. And this is something that they were doing for the camera. Right. Uh, so she is not saying I, I was assaulted. Uh, but he is being listed as one of the, the many men on, on websites or articles that are saying here are all the perpetrators, not even using the word alleged before that, but here are all the perpetrators in Hollywood and and showing all these men. So I, absolutely, I think many of these stories are, are detestable. And I'm so glad that the women are coming out and speaking. And, and I'm glad that a lot of women are feeling more uh, confident in sharing their stories. If they are true stories, then they know just saying if is <laughs> going to be upsetting to a lot of people. But, but I, above all else, think we need to uphold due process, course, justice, yeah. innocence until proven guilty, uh, because that could be your son, your husband, or your daughter or wife accused right. of something. Although I do think that men who are accused are more likely to be believed as the perpetrator than uh, when it's a female alleged victim and a male alleged perpetrator. Yeah, every time I hear somebody say women have a right to be believed, I thought, where did that right come from? You're, nobody has a right to be believed. We, we all have a right to be heard. But I mean, then you have to prove your your allegations. So, and, yeah. And this is, sorry, this is where I have cognitive dissonance because I, I really have a difficulty with this topic because it is so hard to prove what happens behind closed doors between two people when there's not witnesses or video camera footage or something to prove his word, her word, whatever it is. And so that's where I, I really struggle with this topic because I can completely see how, you know, vic victims can, true victims can have a story and they can't prove it. And when do we allow that that belief in them? So this is where I, I struggle with this topic. No, it, it's it's very tough. I mean, this when I, when I was a kid, people used to say rape, rape is the easiest charge to make and the hardest to prove. But you can turn that around on its head too, because it just because it's hard to prove means that 
people can get away with it. And you're absolutely right. It's a really, it's a really, really difficult thing. And there are gray areas and, and people lie, you know, and it's, it's, it's a very tough thing. But I think to discuss it in those complex terms is much different than to hang people uh, from the lamppost yeah. just as, yeah, as feminist victims. So what are you going to do next? What's, what's up for you? Are you working on a film? Oh, I, I want to start a film project in the new year. Uh, so I'm just going to take the holidays this year to, to unwind after the red pill. It's been a, a busy year of, of trying to correct all the misinformation out there. Uh, <laughs> but I do hope people go and watch it. Amazon Prime, Hulu, anywhere you can find online, except Netflix. They were the only ones that adamantly declined. They, they turned <laughs> like, it down, huh? Netflix is the only one, yeah. Wow, wow. Well, Cassie J., it's really a pleasure talking to you, and I look forward to your next project, and we'll bring you back on when you have something else to, to show us. Sounds great. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Cassie. Boy, that's uh, that's really interesting. I you know I have to say, as somebody who's kind of been through this, I, I welcome her to the real world. But the Matrix is a lot more comfortable. <laughs> all right. Speaking speaking of all this, there there are two stories I just have to cover really quickly. Uh, one is this anti-Trumper was arrested in California after threatening to go on a killing spree. His name is David Kenneth Smith. Uh, my colleague over at PJ Media, Deborah Hine, wrote about it. And uh, Smith was arrested in Orange County, California, on November 2nd, following an investigation by the Joint Terrorism Task Force, or a Joint T Terrorism Task Force. And I, I just want to say, if this guy were an anti-Hillary, uh, you know, activist, this would have been the biggest story in America, and I never heard of this. I just want to play what these guys saw. He was sending these videos to people, and this is why they arrested him. Just play a little bit of this. You know, it occurred to me, guys, that... There are probably those of you out there who wonder to yourself, like, what good is going on a killing spree going to do, David? That's a good question. What good is it going to do? <clears throat> well, I won't tell you, so I'm going to answer that. <clears throat> it will do absolutely nothing as far as most things are concerned, most likely. But compared to dying or committing suicide, it sounds like a great idea. I mean, think about it. Well, what should I do? Should I just be homeless? Or should I go on a killing spree? The guy was an absolute lunatic. If he had been an anti-Hillary or anti-Democrat people, it would be one of the biggest anti-gun stories in the world. I just want to say good work to the <laughs> Joint Terrorism Task Force as a guy who definitely needed to be arrested. And finally, I've got to play this piece by Tracy Ullman, the British comedian, who uh, just did this piece about people. Uh, we're talking about all these sexual guys and people going into therapy for their sex addiction, and she has a, this advertisement for a sex therapy clinic. Have you recently been outed as a sex pest? Would you like to pretend your disgusting behavior is the result of an illness rather than you just being a total Then why not check into the Some Sort of Therapy Center? The Some Sort of Therapy Center is Europe's leading facility for everyone from shamed Hollywood producers to shamed Hollywood actor producers our team of presumably therapists is here to help you tell the world it's okay. I'm dealing with this myself. No need for the police. It's the perfect place to relax, unwind, and avoid facing the consequences of your actions. 
Our range of treatments includes counseling or something like that, <laughs> meditation probably, and generally keeping a low profile till the heat's off. <laughs> but don't take my word for it. Here's just one of our self-satisfied customers. Before I came here, everyone was calling me a sex criminal, which seemed wrong to me somehow. But the Some Sort of Therapy Center made me realize that I'm actually a sex addict, which means I bear no responsibility for all the horrible things I've done. So come to the Some Sort of Therapy Center and take the first step to a new you, who's exactly the same as the old you, but hopefully not facing prison. <laughs> I love our self-satisfied customers. All right, this whole show has been sexual follies, but now it's time for sexual follies. Just, this is just something I've been thinking about over the weekend. I had to bring it up. Last week, I was reporting on the election of the transgender guy in Virginia, Danica Roman. While I was talking about it, I got to the pronoun thing, and I actually didn't know whether to call him a him or her and all this stuff. And I, I noticed this survey. This survey was very slanted, but it finds that Democrats with a bachelor's degree or more education are more likely than other Democrats to say a person's gender can be different from the, quote, sex they were assigned at birth. In other words, different from their sex. They actually are. Yeah, exactly. About three quarters, 77% of Democrats with a bachelor's degree or more say this compared with 60% of Democrats with some college and 50% of those with high school diploma or less. No such education divide exists among Republicans. And here's the thing that really got to me as I was, I was thinking about it, and I suddenly got genuinely annoyed. A man who thinks he's a woman is by definition deluded. He is, in definition, believes something that is untrue. He is a man who thinks he's a woman. He doesn't become a woman, even if he chops off his bits and has implants and all this stuff. He doesn't become a woman. He becomes somebody who's a man who's had this operation. I, I, I would be happy in talking to someone to call him whatever pronoun he pleased out of sheer civilized politeness, but I can't, I cannot simply abandon my sense of reality. And it brought to the, my mind the fact that, that, that the sexual ethos the left has now created, and it's totally created by the left, but the sexual ethos they've created, all of it makes absolutely no sense. It, it, we are absolutely being asked to believe, you know, who was it, uh, the, uh, was it the queen in, the, in Alice in Wonderland who believed seven impossible things a day or something like that? That's what they're asking us to believe. They're asking us to believe there's no difference between men and women. All through history, you know, we've, that's been the main difference between people. Now we're not supposed to believe that. But you can be a woman in a man's body, even though there's no difference. Like, how would you know, since there's no difference between a woman and a man, how you would you know whether you were a woman or a man? You're supposed to, women are supposed to be the same as men, and yet men are supposed to stop behaving like men when women are around and start behaving the way women want them to behave, even though they're just the same and they're just as powerful. Women are the same as men. Women don't need any protection from men, but they need to be protected by men. Men should protect them because they shouldn't be chasing them around the room. I don't know why. I mean, if you go to the movies, the women punch men and the men go flying off, you know, off screen. Why didn't they do that when these guys, when Harvey Weinstein was attacked? Could it have something to do with the guy's body weight? It's like three times what the woman's is, and that makes a big, big difference. Uh, you know, the whole thing, and of course, you know, women don't have to take care of children, even though children obviously need women. Here's a story I just want to read from NPR, okay? This is about uh, a San Francisco 49er. It says, Marquise Goodwin plays in 49ers win. Afterwards, he says, we lost our little boy. This is NPR, right? A, totally. Just, it's an anti-Trump, 24-hour, seven, 
24 hours a day, seven days a week, anti-Trump, left-wing station, NPR. The, the caption, which shows Marquise Goodwin falling to his knees after he scores a touchdown, it says San Francisco 49ers wide receiver Marquise Goodwin fell to his knees in the end zone after scoring a touchdown against the Giants on Sunday. He later revealed that he and his wife had endured a personal tragedy. And then the story says, it wasn't until after the San Francisco 49ers won their first game of the season Sunday that wide receiver Marquise Goodwin told fans that he and his wife Morgan Goodwin Snow had lost their baby son hours earlier due to premature labor. Due to pre they, she had a miscarriage. Goodwin posted the news online shortly after the game. He said, we lost our little boy, okay? <laughs> now, I, I understand. I think this is a tragedy. I think the guy's heart is broken. But how come, if that baby had been aborted, if that baby had been aborted, it wouldn't have been a tragedy. NPR wouldn't have reported it as a tragedy. They wouldn't have reported it at all. They wouldn't have reported it at all. It wouldn't have mattered. That life would have been snuffed out, and they wouldn't have mattered. Everything, everything the left says about sex and gender makes no sense. And the idea that we're being asked to apologize when we contradict them, the idea that we're being asked to say the wrong pronoun for people, the idea that we're being asked to buy into the fantasies of people who don't know which gender they are, is just deeply deeply offensive. This involves no hatred of anybody. It certainly doesn't involve hatred of people who have some kind of body dysmorphia or people who want to live. People who want to live as women, men who want to live as women, go the hell ahead. What's it to me? You know, that has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with hatred. It has nothing to do with bigotry. But intellectual dishonesty is just a road that leads off a cliff. The facts matter. The facts come back to haunt you. And if you're not making sense, shut up and think again. And this is the thing I just, it's just occurred to me that when I'm sitting around and I don't know what, what pronoun to use, okay, something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. I'm not going to eat this apple. I'm not going to bite into this world of nonsense that makes somehow makes the left feel better for whatever reason. I'm not going to do it. So that, that is just what I wanted to talk about, sexual follies. I got to say goodbye. Tomorrow is the mailbag. You got to get your questions in now. Click on the podcast. Click on the Andrew Clavin Show. Click on the mailbag. Send in your questions. I will answer them all. Answers guaranteed 100% correct and will change your life sometimes for the better. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is The Andrew Clavin Show. Mm -hmm.